Well, it's an honor and a privilege to be here with you here this morning. Uh, before, uh, before we dig into the text here this morning, I just want to also just talk, I have a, some local ties here to the area. My, my dad grew up just north of Deer River in the small town of Alvwood, Minnesota. And uh, after graduating from high school, he moved to Grand Rapids and he uh, worked at Blandon Paper Mill for several years while going to school at ICC and getting his pulp and paper technology degree. Uh, he lived with my uncle, who was a part of this congregation, Dick Ranso, um, and my, my aunt, uh, Tammy, and uh, cousin Trish are still part of the congregation as well. Uh, but it is really a, a privilege to be here with you. Um, my, one other local tie, my grandfather, he used to work in the mines. Uh, he would come and stay in Grand Rapids. He worked for J&L Steel, uh, working in Calumet and, and other places as well. But uh, let's dig into the text together this morning. We are looking at Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have also had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I want to begin here with a story from, of a man named David Berkowitz from New York. He was known as the serial killer, son of Sam. David Berkowitz was an infamous killer in the 1970s. He killed six people before getting caught and put in prison in 1977. And in 1978, he was sentenced to 365 consecutive years in prison. Well, 10 years later... Dave, while he was in prison, he met a fellow, David met a fellow prisoner who gave him a Gideon's pocket New Testament with the Psalms and told him that God could save him and that Jesus would forgive him if he only put his faith in the completed work of Christ on the cross. And so in 1987, David opened up the Bible for the first time and he read these words from Psalm 34, 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. So David said at that moment, he asked Jesus to forgive him all his sins. And he said that a peace flooded over him in that moment. 
You know, for many of us that hear David Berkowitz's story of forgiveness, it almost seems unthinkable and unconscionable and even offensive and scandalous that a man that committed that kind of crime could be forgiven so simply from just crying out to his Savior. Many think that God could not and should not forgive such wickedness. It offends our sensibilities. It's too scandalous to be part of a polite Christianity. But this is the scandal of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-19, we read this, For the word of God and the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. See, the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. The scandal of the cross is that through faith alone I am justified, made right, and forgiven in Christ apart from works. Romans 3, 24 through 25, we read this. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Forgiveness is received through faith alone. You see, this offends the wisdom of mankind. This is why every world religion is performed on the basis of quid pro quo, or if you do this, then you get that. All world religions, they operate off this this principle, this premise. Religion operates off this premise of legalism, and that by legalism, you receive salvation through adherence to a standard, a morality, or a law. Whereas religion says do, Jesus says done. Christ did not start a religion. Christ fulfilled religion and gave us a way into relationship with God that was broken by sin in the fall. Religion says do this. Christianity says it's already done. Philip Yancey uh, is a Christian author in his book, The Scandal of Forgiveness. He writes this, At last I understood in the final analysis, forgiveness is an act of faith. By forgiving another, I am trusting that God is a better justice maker than I am. By forgiving, I release my own right to get even and leave all issues of fairness for God to work out. I leave in God's hands the scales that must balance justice and mercy. See, forgiveness is an act of faith. It's trusting that God is in charge and he will make all things right by his own judgment. It's releasing control of the need to exact vengeance and giving that to God. And so what we see here in Matthew 18 is something astonishingly different than religion. It's a scandal of forgiveness. A scandal where people like David Berkowitz become part of the same kingdom of God as you and I. Matthew 18, 21 through 22. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So the context of this passage is that Jesus had just been previously teaching on church discipline in verses 15 through 20. And part of that process is restoration, forgiveness, forgiving each other in the body of Christ. So of course, Peter is the one who opens his mouth, right? (laughs) He does this quite often throughout Scripture. And he offers the number seven times. Now, to our modern audience, Peter seems to be kind of cheap in offering seven, the number seven, isn't it? I mean, most of us are sinning against each other more than seven times a day. 
Why the number seven? Why is Peter offering out this number? Well, the traditional rabbinic teaching of the first century Israel was to forgive someone three times. Three times who sins against you. This is what the rabbis and religious teachers were teaching at this time. They were saying the number three. Now, Peter probably thought he was being overly generous, maybe even impressing the fellow disciples and even impressing his master Jesus by doubling the number and adding one for good measure. Well, to the ancient Hebrew people, the number seven was also the number of perfection or completion. So maybe Peter thought he was offering up the perfect number of times to forgive, seven times. Yet what does Jesus respond with? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So in the Greek, the Greek word that's being used here is hebdomakontekis. And uh, it's translated 77 times, uh, or in other places, it's translated as 70 times, seven times. Uh, For you math whizzes out there, 490 times. Now, what did Jesus mean by such an exorbitant number? Well, he meant that it's incalculable, meaning stop counting at all. Don't be counting how many times. Stop playing the game of counting how many times you've been forgiven. Stop playing the game. The, The point of Jesus' much higher number is for Peter to stop. Stop trying to to do this. Stop trying to get into revenge. Stop trying to to seek out your own justice, but instead lose count completely. Matthew 18, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, I want us to pay special attention to this verse because Jesus is telling us the purpose of the parable right up front. The kingdom of heaven is like... Jesus is telling us what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, this fits into the context with the rest of Matthew 18. Jesus is teaching what the people of God are like. He's telling us as the church, the people of God, what are we like as the people of God? Jesus is telling us as the people of God how to relate to one another. So Matthew 18, 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, one of the problems that we run into in this parable in our modern eyes, our modern lens and context, we don't appreciate the monetary uh, measurements. How much is 10,000 talents? Well, in modern equivalents, an average worker in those days would earn approximately one talent in 20 years. So the entire tax levy of all of first century Palestine was roughly 600 talents. 600 Now, this man owes 10,000 talents. Now, if you put that in modern-day perspective, that's roughly equivalent to about $6 billion or 200,000 years of wages. Now, if 10,000 talents would have went missing in the first century Palestine, uh, one author I read said that the entire Roman Empire would have went bankrupt if they would have lost 10,000 talents. Pastor and author John MacArthur makes the point that 10,000 talents was also a euphemism for the largest possible number in the Greek monetary system. (laughs) The largest possible number. Or for us today, it's kind of like saying something to the effect of he owed a gazillion dollars. (laughs) It was just a number in hyperbole, such a large number. So why is Jesus using this extreme amount of money in this illustration? Who could lose $6 billion? Unless you're Bill Gates, I don't even think that's possible to lose $6 billion. Jesus is exaggerating to illustrate that this is a sum of money that cannot be paid back. His original audience would have been shocked when he told this story, similar to our sin that separates us from God. 
This person could not pay it back. Matthew 18, 25 through 26. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. Now the fact that this servant cannot pay back his debts does not stop him from this delusional rant saying that he can pay it back. How ludicrous of a notion to say I can pay back $6 billion. Just give me enough time and I will pay it. His ridiculous statement is almost offensive. Now the problem with the servant is that he didn't understand his predicament. He didn't really fully grasp his own situation. And so often, don't we do the same? We think that our sin can be paid back. Well, I'm not, it's not that bad. When we say things like that, we forget our predicament. I was once candidating to be a pastor of a church one time, and a congregant during the question and answer period asked the question, what if there's this really kind old Jewish lady who didn't really do that many bad things in life, would she really go to hell if she wasn't a Christian? If she never gave her life to Christ? Well, John 15, 5, Jesus says this, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, and he, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, when we think we can pay back our debt, we forget the amount that we owe. The wages of sin is death. The only way to receive life is to put faith in Christ, to abide in him, to receive his free gift of forgiveness. Matthew 18, 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is the scandal of the story, church. This guy comes before the master in this delusional belief that he can pay it back, and yet incredulously, the master forgives the servant. How is this possible? This is the scandal of the cross, that our master, Jesus Christ, would take on our debt. He would absorb the cost of our inability to pay. Many of you might remember the the song, I had a debt I could not pay, this old hymn. The lyrics are, I had a debt I could not pay. He paid the debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. In John 19.30, when Jesus says his final words on the cross, it is finished. The Greek word that Jesus uses here is tetelestai, which is found on ancient receipts during that time period in Greece, which essentially meant paid in full. So when Jesus is on the cross and he shouts out, it is finished, he is shouting out, it is paid in full. The debt has been paid. G.K. Chesterton was an early 20th century theologian, writer, and philosopher, and he once said this, to love means loving the unlovable. To forgive means pardoning the unpardonable. Faith means believing the unbelievable. You see, it takes faith to believe and to trust that Jesus purchased our ransom, to believe that Christ has forgiven the unpardonable. Matthew 18, 28 through 30, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his 
fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him and said, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and he pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay all of his debts. C.S. Lewis, uh, in Mere Christianity, the book that he wrote, he wrote, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. You see, this man owes the man who has just forgiven $6 billion, 100 denarii. Now, 100 denarii was approximately 20 weeks worth of labor, or roughly in today's terms, roughly $12,000. Now, for most of us, this is still a large sum of money. But in comparison to owing $6 billion, it's not even worth comparing. It's infinitesimally small in comparison. And what is fascinating is that this man could even reasonably be expected to pay back the 100 denarii if given enough time and the opportunity to work, which he won't get a lot of that opportunity spending time in jail. Now here Jesus makes this extreme contrast to prove a point. Remember that this parable is being told from the context and perspective of the people of God, the church. Remember how Jesus started the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like this. When we in the church do not forgive people who sin against us, we forget how much we have been forgiven. We forget. Matthew six fourteen through 15, Jesus said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, Jesus is not threatening the church here that if they do not forgive, then they're going to go to hell. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What he's stating is that the people who have been forgiven much, forgive in return. That's part of our new nature as the people of God, that when we've been forgiven, when our cup is full with forgiveness, we can freely offer it to other people. Our cup runneth over with forgiveness, and we can offer it to other people. The scary reality is that people who do not forgive others have not experienced the forgiveness of God. They don't know what it's like to experience God's forgiveness. You can only forgive people if you've been forgiven. It's part of our new nature in Christ as the people of God. Luke 7, 47, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, her sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. It's only when we realize how much we've been forgiven that we can live in a posture of forgiveness. We can forgive 70 times, seven times, only when we have experienced the forgiveness of Christ. Have you experienced the forgiveness of Christ? People who have experienced forgiveness freely offer it. So you might be saying, yeah, preacher, I want to forgive, but I can't. I can't get my mind wrapped around it. I try my hardest but there it is. I can't forgive the people in my life who have offended me. Well, my answer to you this morning is that you cannot just try harder. It takes the supernatural indwelling of the Holy Spirit who's forgiven us in order for us to forgive others. You need to meditate on the word of God, how much you have been forgiven. It's only when you fully recognize and can inculcate how much you have been forgiven that you can then forgive those who sin against you. Because what separates you and I from the murderer David Berkowitz is nothing compared to what separates you and I from God. 
If you are not one who forgives, my question this morning is, have you placed your faith in the Christ who forgives? Jesus concludes his parable in Matthew 18, 31 through 35. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have also had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do this to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, I just want to point out a couple of concluding observations on this parable. Again, I want to reiterate this. Jesus is not threatening the church that if they do not forgive someone, they will lose their salvation. It's clear in scripture that when we have been made new in Christ Jesus, we are also sustained in him permanently. Romans 8, 37 through 39. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we have this promise and assurance. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have been transformed. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That once you've been made new in Christ, you are sustained in Christ forever. You are a new creation. So what is Jesus saying about being delivered to jail forever if you don't uh, forgive your brother from your heart? Well, what Jesus is getting at here is if you are a Christ follower, if you have been made new, if you have received the Holy Spirit and forgiveness from Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ, then the character of his followers is that they will forgive. They live a lifestyle of forgiveness because they recognize how much they have been forgiven. They've received forgiveness and therefore offer forgiveness to others out of the abundance of what they've received. Those who do not forgive, Jesus said, are given up to the jailers. Some of your translations might read torturers. Well, the Greek word used here is basanistes, which means a jailer who tortures. Those who have not placed their faith in Christ and received forgiveness will be delivered to torture. Now, if you're here today and you're struggling with forgiving others, Don't focus on just forcing yourself to forgive. Focus on how much you have been forgiven. Because whatever has been done to you is infinitesimally small in comparison to what God has forgiven you of. We rebelled against the God of the universe. We rejected him, and he sent his son to die and to reconcile us. Now, if you have not received forgiveness from God, consider placing your faith in Christ today and receive the forgiveness that can be offered to others. Forgiven people forgive. The people of God forgive each other because they have received forgiveness from God. I'll invite the worship team forward as I I close in prayer here. Jesus, what can we say to you this morning, God, other than, Lord, help us to forgive others. Help us to receive your forgiveness and freely offer it to others. Help us to be living like the people of God in the kingdom of heaven here on this earth. And God, we know that we are not alone in this journey of forgiveness. We know that that you have not abandoned us or forsaken us. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil because you are with us. 
So God, help us, help us to know that you are with us, Christ, as we go on this journey of forgiving others. Lord, would you bless us this morning as we leave this place, as we go out and continue to so freely offer to others the forgiveness that you've given to us in Christ. It's in your name that I pray and for your sake, Jesus. Amen.